0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat we do have a great chat room so Ravinder, tell us all about it please
1: we have the best chat room it's a great group of people there's lots of opportunities opportunities to learn more and make new friends and uh, yeah and sh- share your ideas definitely so do come in i um, i am hearing from more and more people that they come in and look in the chat room and don't actually say hello so just say hello as well that That would be really nice. But you don't have to do much more. Just come in and learn from the fabulous group of people we have. So that's ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat.
0: All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss the nature of ingratitude. Just last week, I discussed the principle and power behind gratitude. But what about ingratitude? What is it and does it matter? Benjamin Franklin said this about ingratitude. Most people return small favors, acknowledge medium ones, and repay greater ones with ingratitude. Most of us think of someone who takes our efforts or gifts for granted, and this is our example of ingratitude. But there is another more important form that I want to focus our attention on today, and that is the all-too-common nature of how we take for granted all of those ordinary things we have come to expect as just our normal state of affairs. Let me flesh that out some. My pretty bride is always telling me just how grateful she is for paper towels. Paper towels are a part of most people's lives today, but when was the last time you took a moment to appreciate them? I can tell you she appreciates them, especially every time her animals make a mess in our home. Now, this may sound a little crude, But if you've ever been camping without it, then you'll know just why I appreciate toilet paper. Did you know that according to National Geographic, toilet paper wipes out 27,000 trees a day? So when next you're in the forest meditating and appreciating the beauty surrounding you, think about all that toilet paper we take for granted every day. Every evening we turn on our lights in this country, chasing the dark out of our homes. Did you know that according to Scientific America, one quarter of the world's population lacks electricity? My parents used to drill into my head just how grateful I should be for the food on the table, even if I hated what was served. Clean up your plate, young man. Do you know how many people are starving in the world? is how they used to approach my resistance to eating everything prepared. Well, today I do know how many people suffer from near starvation. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, about 795 million people in the world, or one in nine, were suffering from chronic undernourishment during the years 2014 through 2016. Where I live, we are preparing for winter and the attending harshness it can bring. The first winter we were here had wind chill, temperatures approaching 50 below zero. Fortunately, we live in a developed country where heating is often taken for granted. That said, when my heating bill arrives every month, I often find myself griping about the cost. Should I, or should I be grateful that I have heating? The fact is, winter kills. The excess deaths during the winter months in developed countries is staggering. 108,500 deaths in the U.S. in 2008, 36,700 in England and Wales last winter, 5,600 in Canada in 2006, 7,000 on average in Australia, and thousands more in other developed countries. By now you get my point. There is so much that we all take for granted, and in doing so we express ingratitude for the many blessings we share. Isn't it time we pause and reflect a moment on our many blessings, on the lives that came before us, and the monumental work of so many men and women that led to all of the modern conveniences we enjoy? Gratitude is much more than one might expect when you behold all that we are beholden to. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder?
1: Well, you know, um, paper towels. I definitely appreciate (laughs) my paper towels. I try to make an effort to... Think about what I'm doing and to appreciate things as we go along. I'm sorry, honey, I am not going to be thinking about toilet paper when I'm out in the <laughs> forest, except if I need some toilet paper right at that moment, and then I might. Um, but yeah, we do have lots of creature comforts. And I often think back to the pioneers and the people that, you know, when they first came over and what they had to deal with, they had to do everything for themselves from scratch. Um, so, no, when, whenever I think about that, I look around and I appreciate the home and the heat and the music and the food and all of those conveniences. I think it adds a quality to life, too, when you just take a few seconds to stop and appreciate it.
0: We might also, you know, appreciate, especially at this point in time in our history, the fact that, you know, we are a country that uh, practices a democracy. We had an election. There are lots of places in the world where that's not the instance. And whether we like the outcome or we don't like the outcome, you know, a measure of who we are is how we live to the outcome. All right, moving on. Every week, I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show was all about forgiveness and the four-corner philosophy. Forgiving and Letting Go program, I can already feel the fear and guilt disappear. better. Andrea wrote, I think the timing of this show is perfect considering what is going on in the world right now. Thomas wrote, Your forgiving program caused me to pause. The three messages seemed so simple, but when I said them aloud to myself, I found myself stuttering on the I forgive all other part. I didn't realize I still held deep down some pretty nasty thoughts about some people. Thank you for the show and the free program. I got mine. Elizabeth wrote, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your last show. It was exactly what I needed, and I love your Four Corners program. I started my own service diary immediately after listening. Thank you again. Shaw wrote, I played forgiving and letting go, and I cried buckets each time I played this program until I became less affected, and now I only reap joy from this favorite of mine. Another really big surprise, it was revealed that I had to forgive myself for not achieving my fullest potential. A thread ran through my mind with tags carrying the names of those I had enabled to get the career they dreamed about. I stopped beating myself up about my own lack of success and saw for the first time that my contribution had been more valuable than I had imagined. In my view, most unhappy events humans cause each other would never happen if Intertalk programs were used by everyone. Now I like that. What do you think, Rav?
1: I do indeed.
0: Carol wrote, I must thank you for your forgiveness, C.D. Although it was challenging at times, ultimately has changed some fundamental aspects of the way I see myself. I went through some major shifts, putting up a good fight all the way, but finally accepted the new suggestions, which I see manifesting in surprising and pleasing ways. I am so pleased to have discovered inner talk and look forward to hearing more from you. Moving on, Sophia wrote, I just love your radio show. I get it on iTunes every week, and you always seem to have just the right show for me. Tanya wrote, I listen to a lot of alternative radio shows and hear all sorts of things. Often I hear some crazy things, but I can always count on your show bringing me well-thought-out, solid information. Thank you. I like that one, too. Finally, Marvin wrote, I read your wonderful book, Choices and Illusions, and then tried your Intertalk programs. It all made such sense, and I'm happy to report everything I learned from you works. My life has changed, and for the better, I don't know how to thank you. Well, you just did, Marvin, and thank you. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, The Giant Leap for Mankind, with my friend and guest, Bruce Tweedy. Now, those of you who follow me on Facebook know that earlier this year, my son and I took a road trip designed to interview people about what most consider to be humankind's greatest achievement of the 20th century. We took our 1969 Impala Supersport convertible and traveled four states before being forced to return due to some mechanical issues. Now I'm writing a book about today's perception of this monumental achievement, and the interviews are a part of the book. What Was the Achievement? On July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins began their journey to the moon. Their three-stage, 363-foot rocket used its 7.5 million pounds of thrust to propel them into space and into history. The United States Apollo 11 was the first manned mission to land on the moon and it did so on July 20th, 1969. The words of Neil Armstrong when he first walked on the moon are forever written into history. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Now Armstrong says he actually said that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. The tapes, however, are actually too fuzzy to be sure, but the point is clear with or without the a man aspect of this unforgettable quote. So our question posed to all of those who approached us, and believe me, the 1969 Impala Supersport is a traveling poster with incredible attraction power, was simply, what was the giant leap for mankind? Now we expected to hear many things, but not what we generally heard. No, indeed, we heard everything from it wasn't a giant anything to the whole thing was staged. It never really happened. Often we heard about technology advances, but they were put down as steps backward. The cell phone was an example of this, and repeatedly we heard how people no longer talk to each other. They text instead. They text at the dinner table when they could more easily lift their heads and speak literally no one said the event was a giant leap for mankind. Can that be? Something really seems amiss here, for how can so many people think that our greatest achievement in the 20th century was fulfilling John F. Kennedy's challenge and putting a man on the moon, and yet come away thinking it was no big deal? Is this representative of some major generation gap, or have we become so accustomed to everything that came out of the space program that we just take it for granted? Is it perhaps just another example of ingratitude? NASA recently celebrated its earliest and greatest astronauts with the opening of the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame. Congress and the President of the United States created the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, On October 1, 1958, this was enlarged due to the Soviet launch of Sputnik 1 on October 4, 1957. NASA's first high-profile program involving human spaceflight was Project Mercury, an effort to learn if humans could survive the rigors of spaceflight. On May 5, 1961, Alan B. Shepard, Jr. became the first American to fly into space when he rode his Mercury capsule on a 15-minute suborbital mission. John H. Glenn, Jr. became the first U.S. astronaut to orbit the Earth on February 20th of 1962. With six flights, Project Mercury achieved its goal of putting piloted spacecraft into Earth orbit and retrieving the astronauts safely. All of this was not just historical. It changed the nature of our world in so many ways that we decided to dedicate a show to the many advantages we have gained as a society, as a world, due to the space program and see if we couldn't more fully flesh out the giant leap for mankind. To that end, I asked Mr. Bruce Tweedy to join us today. Bruce's father was a part of the navigation project on Apollo 11 and other launches. Okay, Bruce has been with us before. He is one of those people that you can visit with for hours, a truly multi-talented human being. I posted a video of his fast draw on my Facebook page. So if you'd like to see it, just go to facebook.com forward slash Dr. Eldon Taylor. He is the world's fastest gun, and when you see him perform, it's amazing. He draws, shoots, and hits a target in 23 one-hundredths of a second. He is a musician, and we have had him perform live on the show when he and his wife played the waterless crystal glasses. We will play some of his music following our break at the bottom of the hour. He restores classic cars, plays other instruments, has appeared in several Western movies, has been involved in government, and he knows firsthand just how impactful the space program has been to all of us. So on that Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Bruce Tweedy.
2: Well, thank you, Eldon, for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I was totally unexpected uh, as far as my being on the show. I didn't realize that what I did in life really made much more difference to others uh, than it did to me. <laughs> you we- know.
0: You know, the interesting thing is we travel all over. And, of course, you have done so much work on both my sons and my 69 Impalas. Mm -hmm. And you you and I had this opportunity. We kind of discussed what that drive was like when we got back from the road trip and how disappointed we were. And you then started telling me about... Well, your father and what came out of the space program and patents and da-da-da-da. I thought, holy cow, you know, here we go. We drive out. You know, we're we're four states away, and here's a guy in my backyard that knows I should have been videotaping you in the get-go. So it, it, it only seemed right to get you in here. Now, before we get into the space program, though. Everyone, the last time you were on the show, wanted to see a clip or something about your fast draw. So I want to get this fast draw out of the way. I want everybody okay. to know they can go see you do that. And, and, mm-hmm. and I know we caught you off guard in your house with a, a niece of my wife's and, you know, you just did this. Uh, but, you know, tell us about how,
2: what did it take to get that good? Oh, my. Uh, it, it took a lot of practice, of course. Um, you know, I, there's, there's another thing that's involved with wanting to be good at whatever it is that you do, and that is a, the, the desire to do so. And uh, I had the desire to uh, portray a piece of history. And I was at the Western Theme Park, and we were doing fast draw with the Western uh, Fast Draw Club there, and uh, the stagecoach was a Western theme park. Well, we had a lot of visitors come through that would ask, you know, were those old cowboys really that fast? And I would say, yeah, I think that they were because I used the same exact equipment that those old cowboys would have bought in the time uh, that they were uh, roaming the earth. And so I dedicated my fast draw to history. Uh, I wasn't trying to be the fastest gun. I was just trying to demonstrate that you could be fast and accurate with that old equipment. You take a single action Army uh, 1873 Colt, put it into a Commodore Perry style drop loop holster, and uh, the rest is up to you. I made the uh, body conform to the equipment, not the equipment conform to the body. It's amazing what humans can do, both in physically, mentally. When you set your mind to do a project, it isn't necessarily uh, that you're, whether you're going to be able to do it or not, it's how you're going to be able to do that. Sometimes you can do it as an individual, sometimes you have to do it uh, corporately. But I did, in the process, prove that those old cowboys were fast, and at the same time, I beat the world time by one one one-hundredth of a second.
0: Yeah. Now, (laughs) you know, there's this common uh, misnomer, I guess it is. Misconception might be better. The two guys in the western movies walk out into the street, and the good guy always waits for the bad guy to draw first. (laughs)
2: No, no, that won't happen.
0: (laughs) 23 one-hundredths of a second. I mean, you know, your your eyes aren't even going to see that. I mean, how can you possibly respond? You're just dead, right?
2: Uh, Yes, because the 23 one-hundredths of a second is a combined time. A light goes on, the clock will start simultaneously. You draw, fire, and hit a target at 8 feet. Either the sound of the shot or the destruction of the target will turn off the clock. And so we have reaction time and the physical draw time. And in twenty three one hundredths of a second, I saw the light, I drew, I fired I acquired my target and fired.
0: Yeah. So you know, the real good guy would be the guy that drew first because he'd write the history of what happened.
2: Absolutely. You <laughs> give me the courtesy of the first draw, I guarantee you I will <laughs> tell the story because you can't react fast enough. I, well, I'll,
0: I'll tell you what—I sneak up behind you. I'm not going to stand in front of you. I see you draw. Well,
2: you know, it was a—it was a very fun time. I really enjoyed my uh, fast draw career, so to speak. Um, I'm getting older now, so I—I've got to be very careful when I say this. But I'm only half fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's—but I'm still fast enough. Yeah,
0: <laughs> still fast enough is. Uh... All right, let's, let's go to, you know, the purpose of our show. Uh, I, com- I came back off this trip really disenchanted, you know. I was like, how could that be, you know? Uh, what do you think it is, Bruce, that causes people to um, underestimate uh, or to, t- you know, just not see the value of that first moonwalk?
2: Well, I, I really think it's just a, a matter of everyday life. You're more concerned about, you know, the job you're going to do, the things that you need to uh, accomplish in order to make your everyday life comfortable. And, you know, you don't think about the tools that you're using to do that with. Uh, this year's space program was a tremendous effort. It had many components to it. It had a civilian component, it had a military component, it had a corporate component. The uh, greatest thing, I think, that came out of this here space program was the patents. And uh, we're enjoying all those products, uh, from our microwave ovens up to our cell phones. Uh, These are all products of the Space Administration. My dad was working on both the civilian side and the military side and most of his was in the electronics. Um, And as we get used to our, you know, for my generation, it started as a transistor radio. If you remember the old six transistor radios. I do. That was the the rage of the time. And yet that was a direct result of our uh, transistors that we had just learned how to use and uh, semiconductors microelectronics, printed circuit boards, all those things that we use today, which are just commonplace, we expect it. And uh, you get so used to that in just the tools that you use in everyday life to support yourself that it becomes so common, you just don't, it doesn't register as to the tremendous effort it took in order to obtain these items. And it took a corporate effort and, uh, and a governmental effort combined to be able to get the resources available. Eisenhower, you mentioned NASA, the establishment of NASA. One of the reasons for establishment of NASA was because the uh, classified documents that were coming out of the space race at that time uh, were of the military, and it required a certain classification and security to be able to access that information. And creating a civilian organization, now that information can be freely exchanged. And that's where my dad became involved because he was involved in navigation and uh, electronics.
0: All right, we've got a break coming up, so I'm going to ask you to hold it right there on that one. When we come back, we'll pick it back up. We're speaking uh, about what most people consider to be the grandest achievement of the 20th century, the moonwalk. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today featuring our guests playing the waterless crystal glasses. That's something that's pretty rare. You've seen uh, glasses played with water in them, but not waterless crystal glasses. So if you're not in the chat room, now is the time to get on over there. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up get your copy today from all bookstores or online from amazon.com or barnes and noble
0: unlock the power of your mind this is provocative enlightenment with elvin taylor Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting about the Apollo 11 landing and the giant leap for mankind. Now, we normally ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. But today I decided to play some of the music created by Bruce and his wife on this show two years ago. So tell us, Bruce, do you still plan to one day retire and travel and perform music as opposed to, uh, you know, the kind of work that you're doing day in and day out now?
2: Uh, yes, I do. Um, I tried to retire out of auto mechanics. This is my third time to retire out of mechanics, and they just won't let me do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well,
0: that's because you're so good at it.
2: Um, and I appreciate that. I, You know, auto mechanics and auto body have been a natural trade for me, and I've really enjoyed that. Um, I spent a lot of time being a realtor because – I I actually retired 20 years of being a realtor because the chemicals were hard on my health. And so I suffered some toxic uh, symptoms on the left-hand side with some paralysis and so forth. So uh, I've been kind of limited but I do love to restore cars. So I um, I have really decided that I would... Uh, like to retire playing music. And so uh, as soon as I can retire, I, I would love to be able to go out and play music for people.
0: Your website, you have a website, Bruce, and on your website you make some of your music available and there's even a video of you and Sandy playing uh, uh, your music on uh, the, the Crystal um uh, on YouTube. Can you give your website to
2: everybody? Well, the website is Bruce uh, tweedy.com, B-R-U-C-E-T-W-E-E-D-Y.com.
0: Okay, before the break, you were telling us about when your father got involved, and it was the the Eisenhower administration, it was, you were explaining classified, declassified, getting, you know, please pick it up from there.
2: Well, it it sort of starts out with a... um, My dad was interested in electronics. Uh, It was hard to talk to him about other subjects than uh, electronics, but in 1938, he took a job with Northwest Airlines as a radio repairman. His hobby was radar, and that was in 1938. Wow. When the war broke out, of course, he became uh, a very protected individual because of his knowledge of the radar. Uh, They made him... Uh, in charge of bomber modification. Well, actually Northwest Airlines was in charge of the project for the modifying of the B-25 bomber heading to the Pacific. They had a problem with the bomb site uh, on the the bomb runs. And so my dad created the circuitry that allowed the bombardier to fly the airplane via the Norden bomb site So he connected the bomb site directly to the autopilot so that the bombardier could actually fly the airplane in the the bomb run. Um, He said that gave him two permanent buddies to always have when he went out to drink beer. Mm -hmm. So he never, at that point, he never drank alone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. that was his comment. That led, of course, to many other projects Uh, with the civilian and the military component. So uh, he got involved with many projects. um, Lubricants is one. He worked with the micro molly lubricants in order to provide lubricants, both for uh, aerospace and for civilian use
0: what was the significance of why classify declassify what what, what was the why was it important uh, that we declassify information in order for civilians to become involved in nasa
2: well, it wasn't necessary declassification it was the inclusion of the civilian component that allowed communications between the scientific communities not all scientists were uh, employed by the military. And so in order for the military to be able to share information, the transfer of information from one scientist to another, uh, they had to have security clearance. Well, the NASA a lot, becoming a civilian agency then allowed a, lot of, a lot of policy of a need to know. And so the documents were still classified as to a need-to-know basis, but it also allowed all the scientific community then to share their information. So my dad's work with autopilots and gyroscopic navigation and so forth. He could not only post his information that he discovered, he could also read the discoveries of other people and his colleagues and other scientists. And so that allowed for a very even flow of information.
0: Okay, I'm missing something here. What's that got to do with NASA?
2: Well, NASA was initially a military organization run by the Army. And so Eisenhower had to make it a civilian organization in order to allow other uh, entities to be able to work in the project without uh, uh, without it being a military project.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. All right. You get a piece of space junk, at least that's what you call it, around your neck. I do. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I have a very expensive piece of space junk that has impurities to it. It's called silicone. It's a, basically uh, sand uh, where magnesium's been added. Magnesium takes out all the oxygen and you get lithium or silicone uh, instead. Uh, this is what we make computer chips out of and semiconductors we used the space program to make a pure crystal. So they made this crystal up in space in order to get uh, a component that does not have uh, resistance because of impurities. Well, this one has too much resistance because of its impurities. It didn't come out well, so uh, they had to scrap the piece. Now, the piece was about twice the size, of course, but it started out as... What he told me was a five hundred thousand dollar piece of space junk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and this was a Oglala shaman that uh, was, fastened that for you as an arrowhead.
2: That's true. Yes, he wanted my first tape of my crystal glass music, so he could go and practice his worship while he was listening to the music. And uh, he came up and gave me this piece. That's cool. Ordinarily, he would charge between seventeen hundred and two thousand dollars for it. So I. It's a very treasured gift for me because I would never expect someone to enjoy the music that much uh, to give a gift as, as such.
0: It's a beautiful piece, too. All right. Let's let's talk about what we got out of the space program. We've touched on a few things. Y- you indicated that, you know, there were a lot of patents that came out of it. Ravinder, you can get involved in, in this as well. Um you know, what benefits uh, could you say that we have really taken as a result of the space program?
2: <laughs> well, they range from anything from the balloons that you buy for parties on up to your potato chip bag and, and uh, your microwave oven, along with your cell phone, and just everything. Everything has been changed through the patents that we've acquired through the space program the microwave oven, which is a maser. And maser is microwave amplification by stimulated emissions of radiation. These here, uh, microwaves are generated into a, a microwave cavity. And an amazing thing happens while it's resonating inside this cavity. It forms a continuous wave of a very predictable length. And it's so predictable and so precise that we we actually have atomic clocks that are masers.
0: Hmm.
2: And, that's, and what we have done with the maser, of course, in our everyday life is made microwave ovens out of them. Plus, they're very good for communications and they're very good at um, timing circuits for electronics. Now, my dad's work in uh, perfecting the maser, uh, which generates, uh, evolves into the laser, uh, is g- timing gates. Now, I was a boy at this time when we were talking about it, but it seemed to be just amazing to me that my dad was working on something called timing circuits. Now these timing circuits would count the electrons Going through and then switch, and mm. another go to another section of the device and count the number of electrons and then switch, and I'm thinking, uh, I I just this is way beyond me. I'd rather repair cars and work on this kind of <laughs> stuff, <laughs> and so I, I I didn't really think much about it until I got to be older, and the amazing thing that came out of the maser, and uh, the timing circuits, there was the optical maser, which we call a laser, in the common term. And And the laser is light amplification through stimulated emissions of radiation. Well, one laser, five watt laser, coming out at the size of a pencil lead will shine on the moon about a 50 mile radius. Wow. And so the amazing part about that is, though, is that electrons like to hitch a ride right on that signal. And it's a very, very, very small signal, a very, very compact. The electrons will ride on that signal, and you can communicate in that 50, from that pencil lead to the 50-mile radius. That makes space travel possible so that you can communicate going to the moon. Because there are a couple of things that happen there. You have to not only depend on the, human element to guide the craft, but you also need to be able to communicate electronically with all the components on the spacecraft. You can't do that by RF signals, AM or FM signals. You have to have something very distinct. And that signal coming out of the maser uh, portion, amplified to the laser so it can be transmitted, now becomes a very distinct signal, so distinct that you can run over a billion telephone conversations on one beam, one five watt beam. Wow. It is truly amazing. I got the book back in 1978 or so, published in 65, about the benefits of lasers and masers. I read that book and it's a very simple handbook, but uh, I think Adele put it out. But that that particular book right there just Opened my eyes as to how immense this program is. Because and some now,
0: of your father's contribution.
2: My, yeah, my father was into gyroscopic navigation uh, at the time the Cold War was really running. I'm going to move this here because I know it's making noise. The uh, gyroscopic navigation was very important at the time because we only had magnetic navigation up to that point. And going over the North Pole with a magnetic heading does not work very well. So when the gyroscopic navigation came out, uh, his contribution, of course, was with the gyroscopes and connecting that electronically so that when the gyroscope had pressure one way or the other, he had both a horizontal and a a vertical component. And when it was moved because of telemetry, uh, it would register that electronically, and then you'd be able to range the the missile or the target or the aircraft, wherever you wanted to go. Uh, You could just plug in your location and it would take you there. Uh, That worked really well. We spent two weeks in Tokyo at the Masawa Air Base where my dad was training uh, the uh, technicians there how to uh, put that navigation systems on the ICBM missiles. Mm -hmm. And so that really then uh, changed the complexion uh, from that day forward, we always had a couple little blue Chevys sitting outside the door. They're very polite, but they were <laughs> you know two or three blocks away most of the time. They're always watching us, keeping an eye, making sure that we were safe. Hmm. And so I kind of enjoyed a little different view of military life. <laughs> Sounds like from it. that component, but that was part of the laser masers uh, and gyroscopic navigation. Because you, you have to be able to communicate with these devices, and so if you want to navigate to the moon, you need to be able to communicate. Well, that communication on the on the civilian front ends up being our our, our cell phones and our uh, fax machines, our computers. You name it; it all uses the maser and laser technology uh, as their base. Yeah. You know, <laughs>
0: In some of my research, Bruce, one of the things that I found really interesting is how they came up with these things. I mean, first you had a problem, Mm -hmm. you know, and you you think about, you know, if we have problems today, what do we do? You know, maybe we look for an expert to solve our problem. But these were kinds of problems that uh, we'd never had to deal with as, as a species. So, you know, for example, I learned that the handheld vacuum cleaner. Well, it is a result of our space program because the problem was they had to keep dust free of all the electronics, et cetera. So, and they couldn't have some big Kirby or something, you know, floor vacuum. So they developed a handheld vacuum cleaner to deal with that. Well, I listened to what you're saying here, you know, and you, okay, you, you've got to have a, a, a way of navigating, um, but you can't just have a device that will navigate. You also have to have a way to communicate in order to make any corrections that might be necessary, da-da-da. And that's what it was, this problem-solving approach that they took that made all these differences along the way.
2: Yes, and there were hundreds of thousands of people involved in this program, if not millions. I mean, we were all involved with it in some form or fashion. Um even Hollywood, you know, they made heroes out of our astronauts and they came up with programs like a Dream of Genie, you know, for an example. You know uh, the whole country was involved in the space race problem. the mili- I... The military component, of course, was that we needed to find a way of lifting a nuclear warhead and delivering that warhead. So accelerance was another big. Uh, part of the equation. Uh, I don't know if you've really thought about what it took to get out of Earth orbit, but it takes like seven miles per second. Now the thirty oh six rifle with 125 grain bullet will travel at 4,200 feet per second. That's about three quarters of a mile per second. So you've wow. you got to be traveling like 14 times faster than a 306 bullet to get out of this atmosphere. Faster than a speeding <laughs> bullet. Whoa. And now the other problem is you got to slow it down too. And you've only got so much space to hold the accelerants. And I, I, you were mentioning how much I think it took to get a rocket like the um, uh, Apollo program up into the space. Well, right. Goodness sakes, I mean, to be able to travel that fast... Is incredible. We had all sorts of people working on that on that uh, prog- project. Also, it, it, it just—you cannot touch any part of modern society without having a root back into the space program. So many people were involved with that. It was a national pride to be able to go there and do that. Um,
0: do you think that there's a generation? issue here? Do you think that maybe the reason so much is taken for granted? I mean, I'm going back now. Uh, You know, when I was a kid, I just took things for granted. I took, you know, uh, tube radio for granted. I mean, it was the old tubes then, you know, and I made a little money on my block as a kid by taking tubes out of broken radios or TVs and running them down to the grocery store and testing them in the tube Mm -hmm. tester and buying another tube, bringing it back and putting it in, you know? Mm -hmm. Neighbors would pay me to do that kind of thing. But I just, I took took that for granted. I never thought about what did they do before they had radio? Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a generation issue here that we just... We don't stop and think about well, what was it like before there were cell phones? What was it like before there were computers, laptops? What was it like before there were, you know, um, flights? Um, you know, all these airline uh, companies. You know what? I mean, you, you don't have to go back to thinking about horses and buggies. There are so many steps and so many improvements that have occurred in just the last 50 60 70 years that it's like do you think that maybe that's the issue maybe we just take things for granted because we're born and they're there and so okay I've always known that so what's the big deal
2: well I think everybody has an appreciation to some degree for the life that we have created for ourselves and especially in the western world Uh, we have it really enjoyed the benefit of some very hard work from some very dedicated individuals. We need to continue that process. Um, you know, you just get born into an environment and you accept that environment and you deal with it. And I think that's kind of where we've got to. We haven't continued our space race program. Um, not that we don't need to, I, I think it needs to be refocused unless, uh, my my personal opinion is kind of like let's get this technology that we learned and put it on the ground. So let's build our fast rail. Let's build our trains. We have the equipment. We have the we have the switching, uh, we have the circuitry. We have the communications. We have the the need. Uh, how how prideful could we be as a nation to go back to work again on something useful? Uh, you know the space program gave us something useful to work towards.
0: That's a very, very good point. And I think, I, and I totally agree with you. I think, however, if if you shine the light on some of the things that come, have come out of the space program, then people maybe stop for a minute and say, yeah, you know, and you appreciate it more then you're more willing to fund it. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, you know, your, your tax money go to that. And as you say, then bring and apply some of it right here. We're about out of time, Bruce. And before we get gone, uh, I want you to re- give everybody your website again, so they can go visit. Uh, they can they can take a look at the the handsome dude that started all the westerns, the fastest gun in the west, and get some of your music.
2: Well, it's it's b r s a dot com. Bruce dot com.
0: BruceTweedy.com. I invite you all to go there. And I want to thank you, sir, for coming in today and sharing your knowledge with us. You uh, you brought an encyclopedic uh, reference to a real-time kind of information that books and books and books it would take us to read to get. Mm-hmm. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time in same place. And do tell your friends Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Elden at eldentaylor.com.